Thanks. Welcome, Heather. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. Okay. Two days. I'm just saying. Two days. If you haven't wrapped, this is the time to do it. Okay, now who here actually celebrates Christmas, opens gifts Christmas Eve? Who, okay, I think a few, yes, yeah. How about Christmas Day? The right day. No, just, <laughs> look at that, yeah, overwhelmingly so. What I love is uh, this season, my daughter's five, and so her uh, enjoyment and celebration for Christmas has just increased over the years. And every time during this month when I was wondering how close it was to when I was preaching, meaning like close to Christmas, I'd say, hey, Eden, how many days till Christmas? And boy, she would know to the day how many days left till Christmas. And uh, I mean, really, the countdown to Christmas is not just a hallmark slogan in our home. It's like the real deal. And we have, I don't know, three different advent calendars. And I mean, it's, it's, I've kind of gone a little overboard, but it's been a lot of fun for sure. But for me, as an adult, When I think of the season that we're in right now, which is what we call the Advent season, the time where we prepare to celebrate Jesus' birth, there is a tension that I see as an adult that I sure didn't see when I was a kid. There's an excitement for sure in the hustle and the bustle of all that is Christmas, but it's also mingled with the reality that there's ever-present struggles around us I think of the friends who have family members fighting cancer. I think of those who are struggling with depression. I think of those who are missing loved ones this Christmas, whether they've gone to be with the Lord or they're far away in distant towns. I know that all my daughter can see is what awaits her under that Christmas tree in just two short days, but for me, I know the reality that there's so much in this world that won't be solved by what's under the tree. As an adult, I've walked through my own share of sufferings and I've learned over time how to hold space with those who also are hurting. And now, honestly, I feel like I understand more than ever and have a place for Advent in my life. That longing for every tear to be wiped away. I really like this quote. It's from a spiritual director. Her name's Tara Owens. And she says, Advent is a time to notice our current longings, to take stock of them, and to consider what's truly in our hearts before the commercial machine that is Christmas in our culture swallows up all of our best intentions. It's a time to embrace that we yearn for something more and to look at what that something more might be. Why would we even want to wait for it? The theme of waiting through the weeks before Christmas pulses with the tension of what is and what is to come. And here we step closer to the question of what it means to live with hope in a world of pain and brokenness. How can we embrace the discipline of waiting with wholeheartedness when the world around us invites us to immediacy and escape? What does it mean to move beyond the phrase already and not yet and actually live in the tension of mature hope for what is to come? So this month in our Advent series, 
which is called Behold, Journeys to Jesus, which just simply means to see. It's been an invitation to come and see and encounter Jesus himself. And we've been looking at four different perspectives this Christmas. Um, we've been looking at four different stories of people who were invited to behold Jesus. And we've looked at Mary and Joseph so far. We've looked at the wise men or the magi, and we've looked at the shepherds last week. And today, we're going to look at two unlikely characters, Simeon and Anna. And I really love that we're going to be talking about them today because I feel like they're kind of the unsung heroes of the Christmas story. (laughs) You never see them in a nativity scene, right? You never see the the two older people in the back, you know? (laughs) You just, they're never there. Um, But they are so much a part of the Christmas story. And and the, the other reason why I'm excited to talk about them today is because, like I said, though there's the reality that this is the most wonderful time of the year, For many, it's a really hard season. And when I was praying about what this message should be today, I really felt like it needed to be one of hope. Because we all need to be reminded of our hope and of the hope that we have in Jesus. And if you're feeling a little bit hopeless, even today, I want to tell you, you have permission to feel what you feel in the Lord's presence. Because... This question of hope and where your hope is found is probably one of the most fundamentally important questions you'll ever answer in your life. Because where you put your hope determines so much about your life right now and determines so much about how you live your life. I think we also really need to be reminded, especially in this season, of how powerful hope really is. I mean, it affects our perspective, the direction of our life, and it affects our ability to walk through hard times. And as we look at this story today of Simeon and Anna finally getting to behold their Savior, we'll see how what we put our hope in is so tremendously powerful and impacts our lives today. Let's go ahead and pray and invite the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we just acknowledge that you are already here. (laughs) Your presence is with us. But God, we just want to tune our hearts to see you, to hear you today. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come more. Just come more, Holy Spirit. God, there's so many of us here today that are hearing other voices other than yours. And so I just command those voices to be just gone right now in the name of Jesus, to be silent. And I pray, God, your voice would shine through the darkness today. God, we need to hear from you. Lord, that you can speak into our lives. You can speak into exactly where we're at. And I pray that you would. God, you would use this message as a word of comfort and encouragement, a reminder of who you are and what we have in you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you come meet us and just lead me today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So what do we mean by hope? I think that's a really good place to start because honestly, if you've been any, in any kind of stores recently, you're going to see the word hope plastered on pretty much anything Christmas, everything Christmas. It's one of those words that's not only overused in our language today, but it's overused especially in the season. And that's good. I mean, it's a great word, but how about we talk about what hope is not first? 
So what it's not is, it's not wishful thinking. And what I mean by that is it's the, like the belief that naming your desire will somehow make it happen, right? So like, I really hope the Buckeyes win the Rose Bowl. Yeah, I really hope that they win the Rose Bowl, and I do. Uh, or, you know, I really hope that it snows on Christmas. I mean, no matter how many times you say that, it's not going to necessarily snow on Christmas. It doesn't change the reality, right? And it's also not blind optimism. So it's not wishful thinking, and it's not blind optimism. And by that, I mean, which you can, you can start to kind of gloss over problems and avoid looking at the harsh realities in a chance that they might just disappear, you know? If you just ignore them long enough, maybe they'll go away. <laughs> I do that sometimes. It's like pretending and ignoring just the reality of what's around you, saying, oh, you know, it'll all work out, or it'll be okay, or, you know, I really hope that this will happen or that'll happen. It's not blind optimism. And it's also not lofty dreams or goals. Now, it's good to have goals, like saving up for something that you want or practicing to get better at something, but there are so many factors and limitations that are really out of our control. No matter what I do, I will never be a professional basketball player. I am not coordinated. Boy, I got the height on, I definitely have the height, but I do not have the coordination to walk or run and dribble at the same time. I mean, it's pretty sad. But no matter how much I hope, no matter how much I even have goals or even practice, I, there are certain limitations that I have that are out of my control. And no matter how much I hope, it doesn't necessarily change or guarantee that that thing is going to happen or not. So what is real hope? Real hope is actually not something we do at all. Real hope is just, it's something we have. It's something we have. And it's not found in a plan, in a five-step method, or in a dream, or even in a place. Hope is actually in a person. And it's the person of Jesus. Hope is that confident expectation that God himself is willing and able to fulfill the promises that he's made to those who trust him. He really is, as in 1 Peter says, our living hope, our living hope. And that's why we can live in the tension of this life and still have hope. In and of itself, the word hope or the thought of hope doesn't have power to actually change reality at all. Our hope is only as good as whatever it's anchored to. Our hope is only as good as whatever it's anchored to. Beth Moore has this quote. She says, notice the word hope in Psalm 62.5. The Hebrew term here literally means accord as an attachment. Every one of us is hanging on to something or someone for security. And if it's someone or something other than God alone, you're hanging on by a thread, the wrong thread. <laughs> Hope only has a powerful impact in our lives when we anchor it to the one who has real power, the one who has real power. So let's look at our story today, and it's found in Luke 2, 21 through 38. And if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one on either side of the stage, and there's some in the back as well. And if you don't have one at home, please take that one with you. 
We start in Luke 2.21. It's a pretty big chunk, but it reads like a story, so it's, it's a good one. I'm going to jump right in. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem and presented him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel and the tribe of Asher, and she was very old and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Hmm. Now, having been an art student, I have this deep appreciation for the masters. And Rembrandt, you might have heard of, a famous Dutch painter in the 1600s was particularly fond of this particular passage in scripture. It was actually one of the first recorded paintings that he ever did, and one of the last recorded paintings, actually his, un, his last unfinished work, was of Simeon holding Jesus in the temple. He was fascinated by this passage. So while this picture's up, and I love this painting, by the way, and you can look at it online to see more detail, but the source of light in this painting is Jesus himself. There's no exterior light. He is the source of light in this painting. So while it's up, let me just kind of paint this scene for you. Now, the Old Testament law required that a Jewish woman offer a sacrifice in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem 40 days after she gave birth. The sacrifice was required for ritual cleansing of a woman from childbirth. So during those 40 days, she was seen as unclean, and so was Joseph for helping out with the delivery, and they would have been not able to go to worship in the synagogue or touch anything sacred except the Son of God himself. Uh -huh. And it was also required under the Old Testament law that a Jewish family give a small sum of money in the temple upon the birth of their firstborn son. So Joseph and Mary, 
make their way up to Jerusalem to the temple to make the required sacrifice and to give the required money. Mary and Joseph had just this simple offering of two doves or two pigeons. Remember, they were, they were of meager means, and it really was this kind of public declaration of their poverty. <laughs> Obviously, the Magi haven't visited yet because they would have had some gold to actually buy something bigger, like a lamb. <laughs> but interesting, they had the Lamb of God in their hands. So this is first, Jesus, first time Jesus has ever been presented in public. And there's a wonderful just array of nuggets in this passage here. I mean, Simeon's song alone, his prayer here, is worth diving into. But what I want to focus on today are the similarities between these two unrelated characters, Simeon and Anna. You know, their backgrounds were probably really different, and they were obviously different genders, but one was probably pretty self-sufficient, and the other one was pretty much dependent on the church. But what's the same across both of their stories says so much about the power of hope to change our lives. And by looking at simply how they both waited, looking at who they were, and looking at what they had been through, shows us this beautiful example of how to navigate this life with Jesus as our anchor and our hope. So that brings us to our first point today, and it's simply what is whatever we hope in determines our perspective in the waiting. It determines our perspective in the waiting. Simeon and Anna, what we see here is they both waited expectantly, expectantly. Now, Simeon is described as a man waiting for the consolation of Israel, and Anna is seen as one who longed for the redemption of Jerusalem. And they represented all of God's people who had eagerly been waiting generation after generation for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. Now in Hebrew, Messiah means anointed one. And and as does the Greek word Christos, because Jesus himself would be that restoration for Israel. Now this hopeful expectation is what led them both to the temple that day. It wasn't a host of angels in the sky. It wasn't Gabriel himself. It wasn't a star that brought them, but a promise, a promise. Simeon had been given a specific promise even, that he wouldn't even die until he saw the Messiah. As we look at verse 27, moved by the spirit, he went into the temple courts When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. So both of them have what we see are very joyful responses when they finally behold Jesus. I mean, can you imagine what their faces look like? Would you just see like their expression when they get to finally hold Jesus himself? And for Simeon, it meant that he could leave this world in peace. But for Anna, she immediately starts talking to everybody. Did you see what I saw? Did you see what I saw? (laughs) And she tells everybody about the hope of the Messiah. But would they have been filled with so much joy upon his arrival if they hadn't have already been filled with so much hopeful longing. What we hope in allows us to have perspective amidst life's sorrows. It changes how we wait. It changes how we wait. 
You know, it's kind of like when you have a vacation on the calendar. Do you know what it's like leading up to the vacation? You know, you're here in Ohio in the miserable, rainy, cold weather, and all you're thinking about is your vacation to the Caribbean, where it's going to be warm and you're going to be bathed in sunlight and surrounded by waves, right? And it's almost like, you know, you just smile at the thought of it and you feel warm on the inside, you know, knowing that in a few short weeks you're going to be in the sun and away from this miserable weather. It's kind of like that with hope, isn't it? And friends of mine actually gave me another analogy, which I, I thought was great as well. And they said, it's like when you come home and someone has a roast in the oven, or maybe it's you know, Christmas turkey or Christmas ham, I don't know, whatever meat you choose. Uh, the smell hits you right when you open the door, doesn't it? When you open the door, and even though you don't know there's a roast, you haven't seen the roast in the oven, you smell it. I mean, it's so good that you just you start to like salivate at the thought of it. I mean, it's so powerful, and you still haven't seen the roast yet, but the hope of it, the smell, the aroma of it just captivates you. Well, that's how it's like with the kingdom of God. You know, God, Jesus doesn't say that, that we have to wait till heaven to taste the little bits of the kingdom that we actually get to taste it here on earth as it is in heaven. As Danny says, we get little handfuls of heaven here and now. And, and yes, that means that we you would definitely wait with eager anticipation for Christ's return. And because and we know, right? We know that heaven's on our calendars. We know heaven's on our calendars. And it comforts us in our present and gives us excitement for the future. How different would life look if every day we remembered that? If every day we lived in that kind of expectant excitement, looking forward to and was salivating at what will be one day? You know, my, I have a great example of, of someone who's really lived well in this tension, and, and it's my sister-in-law, Rachel. I'd say she's kind of a little bit of a hero for me. I've watched her and my brother go through some really just hard stuff over the last year and a half. And, and about a year and a half ago, they got a call uh, from, um, from their, uh, the human services department who said, hey, you know, I know your foster parents. Would you consider taking this little six-week-old uh, boy into your home for a couple weeks? And, and they had been praying about you know, who to take in because they got calls all the time, sadly. And, and this one, there was just something about this call. They, they just felt like the Lord said, say yes. And so they did. They opened their home up to a little six-week-old boy named Jackson. And I remember hearing from Rachel, just her perspective as she walked into the human services department that day. And she was really excited to get to love on this little guy for a couple weeks. And when she walked in, she, she met the two parents that were in tears, who were ready to like had to hand over their little baby to complete strangers. And her heart just broke for these parents. And, and throughout this journey, I mean, what she thought would just be a couple weeks turned into a couple months and turned into a year. And I mean, court case after court case and meeting after meeting, I mean, it was just, it's been a really up and down year for them. And as of December 11th, Little Jackson's last name is now Sylvie, and he is my new little nephew. <laughs> and he has been adopted into my brother and sister-in-law's home, and they are so excited 
But when my sister talks about the, the last year and a half, she says, you know what? I could never hold on to the hope that he'd be ours because we never knew what would happen, right? And that's what's so hard when you're a foster parent. And you never know what's going to happen. Uh, she said, my guarantee, my hope had to be in Christ and his goodness and his grace that he had given us Jackson for just this little bit of time to love on him, to love his parents well, to take care of their little one. And, and I know that in the end, it, you know, it worked out really well for them, but she even said on the day that they adopted Jackson that she was grieving still for his parents. And I love that. I mean, she has just been such a picture of holding this hope amidst the tension and the ups and downs of the last year and a half. And, and what's crazier still, it's just three days ago, she had her third little boy. So within a month, she added two to her household, and she now has three little boys under the age of two, right? Yeah? Okay, yeah. Pray for her. <laughs> Again, I said, like, she's my hero. <laughs> uh, just such a great example of what it looks like to hold on to Jesus as our hope amidst life's trials. In Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, we need one another to keep encouraging one another not to give up to remember that we're not alone in this and that his goodness can still shine through even in these moments of hardship. And that brings us to our second point. What we hope in determines our purpose. What we hope in determines our purpose. Now, Simeon and Anna had become devout prophets. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, and they had chosen a life of devotion and prayer, waiting and looking for the Messiah. They didn't wait alone, though. They had the Holy Spirit. And this is what they chose to live for. And they were not disappointed. For my eyes have seen your salvation, Simeon says. Ultimately, whatever we put our hope in is what we end up living for. That's just the reality. Whatever we put our hope in is what we end up living for. And another way to think about it is, what you live for is what you put your hope in. <laughs> Just switch it around. <laughs> our hope really does determine the purpose in our lives. And I think we all know people like this, right? We know people who, who their hope is in, the, in their money and their financial security, and so everything in their life is pointed toward that all their goals, all their ambitions, all their dreams, all the things they do is to make sure that they're more financially secure because that's where their hope is. That's where their hope is. And, and it could be anything. It could be maybe your marriage. You're looking to your marriage for your fulfillment, for your happiness, or, or for your children, or from your job, or maybe even for good health. You hope for good health, and, and that's what so much of your actions dictate. And, and what's hard here is many of us end up putting our hope naturally in things that are good. I mean, those are all good things, but they're inevitably going to be stripped away at some point. And I love C.S. Lewis' quote where he says, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose, 
on something you might lose. And I'll just, I'll use myself as an example here. All the time this happens, it's a struggle. My hope is constantly falling back into myself. <laughs> and really, it's, if I narrowed it down a little bit more, I would say my hope a lot of times is in my own performance and my own tendency toward perfectionism. And what happens, what I notice more often than not, is that I struggle to start things because I worry that I'm just going to outright fail, so I don't even start. <laughs> so I completely either disengage or I overstrive, I overwork to the point that I end up hurting myself and sometimes even others. And honestly, I, I start getting overly worried about what people are thinking about me. I start to hyper-control my efforts and everything I'm doing. I can become really defensive and critical because deep down I know, I know I'm not perfect and I know I never will be. But there are many times where when I fail, and boy do I ever, I fail quite a lot, I can feel so discouraged and so beaten down. I mean, even before the day's begun, it's hard to get out of bed because my hope is in myself. And over the last Wait, two years, as the Lord's been transitioning me from uh, my old career to working here at the church, that is constantly in something the Lord's been asking me, Heather, is your hope in your job? Is your hope in yourself? Is your hope in your performance? Or is it in me? Is it in the promises that I gave you? Is it in me, myself, walking with you day by day through this? And, and I'll be honest, there's many times where I just want to run for the hills because it feels too hard or the risk feels too great but God is constantly pulling me back to that anchor and that foundation that cannot be moved, which is him, which is him. I think we all have this tendency, right? I mean, if we're honest, we all have that tendency to put our hope in things other than God. Because, I mean, we're all broken people, and we don't like being dependent on other, one, other people, do we? And so we fill our empty wells with what we think will satisfy, you know? That, that thing we can get to quicker than just having to pray for a really long time for it. <laughs> Might as well just do it myself. And, and so many times we do that, but God says over and over, I am living water. I am the well that will never run dry. I am that living hope. And, and having our hope in Christ and who he is and in his promises, that means we will never be disappointed. And that's quite a claim. I mean, in Romans 5, 5, it says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. A striking example is Bertram Russell, who was a philosopher in the early century, um, earlier in the century, and he's a, he was actually an outspoken atheist, and he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. And when he was 81 years old, and his health was deteriorating, he was interviewed by a British, British radio station, and the interviewer actually asks him these questions. He says, what do you have now that you're coming to the end of your life? What do you have to hang on to with death being so close? And Russell, responding very firmly, but also very honestly, pretty much said, I have nothing to hang on to but grim, unyielding despair. Wow. <laughs> he had put his hope in this world, and he was left with what he knew was plain old despair. But in Jesus, 
We have a hope and a future. We have a hope and a future, and his plans for our lives can be discovered when we surrender and we trust in him. And that brings us to our last point. What we hope in determines our ability to persevere, our ability to persevere. You know, Simeon and Anna were both older, (laughs) and that means they had been waiting a very long time, And I know Simeon's age is actually not given in the text here, but there's a lot in the text that does suggest that he has been, that he has advanced in years and that he's been waiting a really long time. And that means he's probably watched many of his close friends who have also waited for the Messiah alongside him, you know, leaving this earth, never having seen the Messiah. And even in the way he talks and prays here in this passage, there's this deep sense of relief and joy And the text also says actually a lot more about who Anna is here, even though she actually never says anything. Nothing's actually recorded of what she says. There's a lot more background on her. It says she was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old, which is hysterical. That's actually recorded. (laughs) I'd love to be known for the one that was very old. And she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. And what's interesting is actually a lot of theologians think that the text actually says that Anna was a widow for 84 years. That if you read it in the, in the Greek, that it actually looks like that she's actually been a widow for 84 years, which, depending on when she was married, means she's probably around 100, 105 years old here. So, yeah, she was very old. <laughs> and now Anna had known her share of heartache. I mean, think about it. She was a widow in her early 20s. In her early 20s. But what's interesting here, even though she knows sorrow, she did not grow bitter. And I, I know that you know, sorrow has the potential of really doing one of two things to us. It can either make us bitter and hard, resentful and even rebellious against God, or it can make us kinder. It can make us softer and more sympathetic and, and root our faith even deeper, which is what we see with Anna. And what we hope in, in, in as Anna did, what we hope in really does, a, it determines our ability to endure. As so many of us know firsthand, it's not a matter of if the challenges of life are going to come. It's a matter of just simply when, right? And sometimes, when the challenges of life come, it starts to reveal even what we've put our hope in. I mean, I remember the first time I lost my job, and it was my first real career job. And after three years, boom, it was just all over. And it left me reeling. I mean, of course, you're dealing with, you know, rejection and hurt. But I mean, I was rocked to the core. It took me weeks <laughs> to really, like, get over it. Like, I mean, weeks and weeks. And, and I realized, God pointed to me and he said, Heather, you've put so much of your hope and your security in your job. He's like, where should your hope be? And I realized, I mean, how natural it is for us to put our hope in things of this world that can be taken away. And the Lord continually will remind me of that. Heather, where's your hope? When we put our hope in something that's temporary, something that can and will be eventually stripped away, the challenges of life really can rock us. But if we put our hope in something outside of this life, then it gives you the ability to persevere. Now, I've read before 
<laughs> that there are that that the two most painful things that you can ever really experience physically on average is childbirth and passing a kidney stone. Now, I only can attest to going through one of those, but on a purely physical level, those two things are extraordinarily painful. But how people process the pain is very different, right? Very different. Because, you know, it's possible, maybe give a year or two, but it's possible for a mother who's just given birth to actually say, you know what, let's do that again. <laughs> but you never hear someone who's just passed a kidney stone say, oh, I hope God will bless us with another one. <laughs> you never hear that, right? That is never part of their reaction. Why? Simply because, yes, the pain is intense for both, but the outcome, the outcome is very different. One, you get a baby. The other one, you get a stone. But when we hold on to hope, how we process the pain and suffering is very different because we know what's on the other side. We know what's on the other side. Joni Erickson Tata, which has, she's had her share of, of suffering and pain. If you know her story, if you don't, I definitely recommend you uh, looking up her story and reading some of her books. But she says, one of the best ways we can look for in this life, the best we can look for in this life is a knothole peek at the shining realities ahead. Yet a glimpse is enough. It's enough to convince our hearts that whatever sufferings and sorrows currently assail us aren't worthy of comparison to that which waits over the horizon. When our hope is in Jesus and in his promises, what that means, what that really means for us is that we are not alone. We are not alone. There's someone who not only walks with us through this life, but there's someone who knows better than anyone what you are going through. Because we are hand in hand with a savior who was acquainted with sorrows, who knows rejection, who knows loss, who knows what it looks like just to live with the, the, in the tension of pain and suffering in this world. And we also have truth to hold on to, a picture of what will be, a picture of what will be. And the reality is that we have an enemy in this world. We have an enemy that would love for nothing else but for us to give up. And honestly, I, I think that's one of the biggest little whispers and lies that he'll tell us sometimes is, you know what, this is just too hard. This is just too hard. We should just give up. Just give up. He wants us to give up on life. He wants us to give up on hope. And he wants us to give up on God because he knows if he can sever the anchor in our souls, which is anchored to Jesus, if he can cut that, that connection we have, the hope we have in Jesus, then we're just adrift. Our lives are just adrift. But no matter the circumstances, God's presence and his promises give us Real hope, real hope that lasts forever. Amen? Amen. Well, let's go ahead and stand.